Good afternoon. It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon and you're listening to St. Andrew's Radio. Welcome to Eco-Activist Journeys. My name is Leah Wyman and I'm a third year student at the University of St. Andrew's studying sustainable development and international relations. Today I'm joined in the studio by Donald McEwen, who's the university chaplain, and we will be discussing the role of faith, faith communities in the climate crisis. And yeah, just some thoughts around that. Um, yeah, thank you, Donald, for joining me on the show today. It's really lovely to be here, Leah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I thought we'd start with maybe, I don't know, a personal narrative, you know, what you think would, has been a favourite memory of you in nature that increased your appreciation of the world and that was maybe of spiritual significance. Um, all right, it's a big question and I'll do my best to answer. Um, I, I think, became concerned about issues around the environment when I was an undergraduate in Aberdeen. And um, it was through, largely, it was actually through reading and through what I had heard uh, at school and in early days at university. And during that time, when I was in my mid-teens, um, late teens, um, I think probably the part of the world that the, the natural part of the world that was most important to me was an island off the west coast of Scotland called the Isle of Arran. Um, it's an hour's ferry journey from the ferry port, which is called Ardrossan. And Ardrossan is about 45 minutes or so southwest from Glasgow. So it's not very far from Glasgow, where I grew up. And... Um, it's not very remote. And actually, when you get to the island of Arran, it's, it's quite suburban in some ways. Uh, it feels like an island suburb of Glasgow, but it's beautiful. Geologically, it's very interesting. It's got a fault line in it, so that the top half of the island is part of the highlands of Scotland, and the bottom half is part of the central lowlands. So um, ge geologically, it's really interesting. And I used to go there every summer for a camp, and um, really loved sleeping outside, sleeping outdoors under mm. canvas, uh, campfires, seeing the stars come out. And then maybe there'd be about a half hour, 40 minute walk from that campsite down through the, the, uh, the bracken, the ferns, down to the shore and then along the pebbly shore over the seaweed, coming around into the nearest village, which is called Whiting Bay. And I think all that time, 15, 16, 17 years old, I was just beginning to get that appreciation of being part of nature. Meanwhile, I was going to university and doing subjects like ethics and international relations, reading, becoming aware of the greenhouse effect, and perhaps you want to hear more about that a little bit later. <laughs> But that island was influential when uh, I was still a teenager. Uh, the island that is the most spiritual island and place for me now is also off the west coast of Scotland, but is further north. That's called Harris. It's my favourite place in Scotland. Um, it has two sides. The left side, the Atlantic side, is beautiful sandy beaches. Macher which is a kind of moorland just behind the beaches. Um, 
and emptiness. The east half of Harris is a sort of moonscape of glittering grey rocks, purple heather, sea lochs. Wow, I've not heard of this of this island before. Sounds magnificent, mm. really does. You should go. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually so interesting to think about, you know, how actually when I think about now about nature, there's just something calming about mm. just being outside or especially at school years if you have like camps and you go to the outside. And in my school, we did a lot of like school outings to the outside or just sleeping outside as well. And just, there's just, you're just so present, I feel like, in just being there and just it gets dark and then it's almost natural to kind of, be tired and go to sleep or maybe just watch like see the noises rather than like here obviously with artificial light so much has changed so much of our behavior towards in the evening so yeah it's 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 really interesting to see how you know how that natural connection Mm. is so important but also how we've I think as a society quite moved away Mm. a lot from spending time outside um but yeah what moving a little bit on to um why do you think it's so important for faith communities to take a stronger stand on, um, you know, on climate change, but also on um, on the responsibility to protecting um, creation. Uh, well, I think the last word of your question is the first word of my answer, and that <laughs> is creation. Um, I'm a Christian, and um, and so part of my faith, but actually, I think part of many people's other faiths is that this world is creation. Now, that doesn't mean that I think um, everything that we see was put there in its detail by a creator. That's usually called creationism and leaves no room for, for science. Actually, I think science explains how everything has come to be the way it is. Uh, I believe in natural selection and evolution and random mutation as the the driver for that, um, and the, the, the current stories uh, and interpretive model of the Big Bang, uh, I presume, is true. Nevertheless, I believe that these things have sprung from the, the good purpose of God. That's the name that I've inherited and used. Many people use different names for, for what I've just described. Um, And so that means that everything, all these stars, the billions, I mean, we don't know how many (laughs) planets there are, but there's a lot. Yeah, we're discovering them in St. Andrews University in our own uh, School of Physics and Astronomy, but there's there's heaps of them. So there's all these planets, there's, uh, you know, a number in our own solar system, and we know of at least one that's got life on it. And there's probably, I think, Millions more. (laughs) Okay, that life, I believe, has emerged from the purpose of God. Why? That's a great question. But I certainly think the aim of the creator is flourishing, that life should flourish. I mean, think just the immense variety of insects, of fish, uh, of plants, of trees, um, of even hybridization that happens within nature. I mean, it's just astonishing. The profusion of life in this one insignificant planet that we know of. Mm. Let's assume there's another gazillion of those around the universe, okay? Uh, 
And even if there isn't, even if it's just this one, what profusion in this one? Uh, so it seems to me that profusion, flourishing, biodiversity appears to be something that is good. It's certainly the way that evolution has happened. Um, so natural selection believes it's good to have this huge profusion. Nature loves it, right? Um, you know, the narrowing of, of, of biodiversity is something that is caused by predation and by habitat loss. It doesn't come really yeah, until you have the willed actions of human beings. So um, I, think, I think profusion uh, seems to be part of the creator's hand. It appears that that is good. Uh, and actually, we see pleasure. Human beings have pleasure. We have three cats. They take pleasure in a full stomach. <laughs> Many creatures take pleasure in sex. There are lots of things that are pleasurable out there in nature. And it just seems to me that that's a good thing. And therefore, what is the responsibility of us human beings who are unusually clever and stupid all at the same time, unusually powerful and apparently weak at the same time, I think we've got an immense privilege there may, and responsibility. There may well be thousands of other species mm. in the universe that have got that responsibility, but we don't know of any of them yet. Mm. Our cats cannot mitigate the effects of climate change. But, Leah, you and I can. <laughs> and so can yeah. the thousands of listeners in St Andrews. Yeah. And so as a person of faith, I think it's my responsibility as a believer in God who loves the profusion which God has allowed to be to let it flourish as best I can. Yeah, and I think this is just, it's such an important significance to think about, you know, where we can dream and we can think and we can question about things. And I feel like it would seem like such a waste if we wouldn't have to have to make use of that and mm. that ability to also mm. problem solve. Mm. Um, I mean, really, I think maybe that's also kind of like, like just thinking about you know these like this big sp perspective like for mm. example like night skies or mm. other planets and realizing you know there's just so so much more and we're on these tiny tiny planet but what a privilege it is to like live life mm. in a human body mm. and be able to think and to question um, and to yeah, dream and to dream but I think that's um, so yeah. interesting that so. you mentioned that dream and I you, I don't think you mean dream as in what our brain does bizarrely when we're asleep. <laughs> no, I think what you're thinking of is to envisage a different yeah, future. Yeah. Uh, we don't know what's in the minds of all other creatures, but it, uh, it certainly appears that this is a significant feature of human experience, which is that we can envisage alternative futures yeah. and then take steps towards the realisation of them. Yeah, I was thinking maybe, you know, maybe the greatest failure of not addressing, you know, some of the big issues of our time, like climate change, is is the inability to imagine a different world. Absolutely, and and um, you know, and it gets difficult because sometimes the only future that you can imagine is a future of, you know, five six degrees Celsius rise, um, rapid um, species death, and a pretty horrific hot planet. You know, yeah. actually, I mean, you just have to spend a week in London in the summer to have a sense as to what yeah. that could be like. I mean, even I think five six degrees. I don't even know if we can imagine what that really means. Mm. If we can already see with like almost one degree warming, how yeah. much of a change it's Absolutely. having on the world, on you know, on the um, on ice melting, on glaciers melting, on 
sea levels rising, people being displaced on wildfires. Yeah, I mean, already what's happening now is quite like shocking. And mm-hmm. I think maybe some of the narrative is also, you know, it doesn't sound like a much, like one degree mm. doesn't really sound like much. Um, to you, to normal, like mm. average degrees, but that could make a massive difference in different parts of the world. And mm. obviously, it also means like different, like I think climate change obviously means very different things to different parts of the world. Like some will be affected more than others. Yeah, what's unusual so, about California, interestingly, is that it's a rich part of the world that is so clearly affected. Yeah. And, um, and what's interesting about that is that North America. Um, is a huge continent and is subject to extreme vagaries of weather in a way that Europe is is protected from. You know, Europe has uh, is in a very temperate zone, and unless you get really into Siberia, we don't have plungingly low temperatures, nor do we have horrendously high temperatures. Although Greece and mm. and and southern Europe is starting to get really yeah. very hot, but nevertheless. Uh, North America is different, much more continental, and so the wildfire situation there um, is really intriguing. And um, it's not a good thing that it's happening, but that it is happening in the United States, which is the most powerful country in the world, uh, might be fruitful for the debate. Let's hope. <laughs> we must hope so. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, to bring it a little bit back, in case we drifted a bit off, what do, you, do you actually think maybe climate change is an opportunity for people of different faith to come together to stand United, you know, behind that idea of protecting creation. Yes. I think it's a great idea. I do think that um, this is a, an issue in which different faiths see things similarly, not identically, mm. but similarly. Uh, I mean, for example, the key texts which Christians will cite when thinking about the human place in creation are biblical books of Genesis and Job and the Psalms, and Isaiah. These are all in the Hebrew Bible. These are all Jewish texts. These are shared between Jews and Christians. Furthermore, Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all people of the book. And so there is much in common there in understanding uh, nature as emanating from one creator. Uh, and I think there's a lot uh, of common ground there. Um, we in St Andrews have a pagan chaplain to the university, and I've been to a number of events of which she has made it clear um, the the strong connection that pagans have with nature, um, seeing divinity within nature, not opposed to nature, but as in some way belonging within it. And that's a perspective which is not completely shared with Christianity, but certainly is one that's very open to our responsibility then for for nature. Um, other religions, um, in different ways, all have a respect for the external world. Buddhists, for example, have a strong sense that human beings are part of a community of creation and in, in, indeed the same person might have inhabited different animal Mm, outer yeah. beings throughout their lives. So I think that that you're absolutely right that this is an issue which, in terms of belief and conviction, people from different religions can share a lot and that, that, that can motivate common action too. 
Yeah, I think I was just thinking. However, it's also really important to think about how climate change is actually uh, in the, um, it, uh, increases stresses, certain stresses mm. in the environment and social stresses, mm. such as already poverty and mm. um, conflict. Mm. So I think it's just so important to sort of address it with some of like the social issues and and differences in the world as well to sort of yeah to sort of make it something that unites us rather than that divides us more i mean yeah it i don't know a huge amount about this but um there have been a lot of it's been a lot of conflict in the middle east and in certain parts of africa over the i mean i suppose 911 as it were is the moment that kicked it off but 911 wasn't the start it was that in some way that was the part of a phenomenon that has started before and you know it has suited people to characterize that as a war of civilizations between the liberal christian west and the medieval islamic middle east and so on it has suited people on both sides to characterize it as a clash of civilizations when it's not been a clash of civilizations it's been a down and dirty war for resources like they always are um these are resources are of water mm. of oil and of influence. Yeah. And and what you notice is you can map two things, okay? You can map problems or absence of water around the desert the deserts of the world. So the main deserts, right, the Sahara and the Arabian Desert. You can map an area around just on the fringes of that which known as the Sahel in Africa, which have been marginal lands. And you can map round the Arabian Desert too, and two maps. One is of problems with uh, lack of fertility, lack of water, and the other is conflicts over the last 20 years. And you know what? It's the same map. They overlap, yeah. They overlap hugely. All right? That is not a coincidence. These are not wars between Christianity and Islam. Mm. These are wars over scarce resources yeah. for human life. Yeah, from that, what do you think, what worries you the most in terms of the climate crisis? Oh, gosh. Leah, that's such a good question. I don't know, actually. Every time I watch a new program on telly, that's the thing that worries me most. <laughs> um, I think... I think it's heat. Mm. I think what worries me most is heat. I don't like the heat. I quite like it cool. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a Scot. Uh, I grew up in a, a temperate, relatively cool culture. I quite like it. Uh, I, I actually love Scottish weather. I think today, which is quite a crisp, frosty day, not quite frosty, but it's crisp and cold. I like that. Mm. Suits me. And it's still blue sky. So. And still blue sky. Yeah, it's not too smoggy. Um, and, and I guess I worry about a world which is getting hotter. What's that going to be like? I think that it's bearable here, but what's that going to be like in places that are already hot? How will that be livable? So that, I think, is worrisome. Um, that, I mean, that's yeah. a kind of a visceral fear. You know, for me, actually, I think it's the extremes that worry mm. me the most. Mm. Not necessarily just hotter, but that sort of fluctuation between really intense weather events of, mm. 
of hot and then mm. cold again mm. and how that really also has an effect for I mean this is a very small example it's obviously not what worries me the most but I think it's really quite interesting is for example in, in winter when um, hedgehogs mm. go to, to, um, to sleep hibernate hibernate and um, then in the spring if it gets warm too soon they can wake up mm. but then if it turns cold again then obviously they'll freeze to death and they can't mm. find anything to eat and it's already happening to see kind of like, you know, how those patterns of like extremes and like just weather changes are really like messing up with mm. with the natural system with mm. with of animals, um, but also of humans. Because, I mean, it's usually stressful to have mm. just that fluctuating. Yeah, those fluctuating weather situations of like hot and cold and storms and rain and flooding mm. and. Um, I think especially sometimes, you know, th- in, in desert areas, that's a big problem of when there's drought. And then suddenly there's a massive amount of, like, rainfall. And then that rainfall cannot stick into the Indeed. ground. We saw this in Mozambique and Zimbabwe this year. Mm. Um, and uh, we'll see, we're going to see more of that, uh, the climate model, people tell us. Um, and I think that is frightening. What's not... I mean, already... You know, I, I, I'm going to take a punt here and say that climate change is the number one reason for my migration across the world. Maybe that needs argued through, you know, I, and maybe I shouldn't say that. But if it isn't already, it soon will be. Mm-hmm. Um, people are going to leave increasingly dry and infertile areas to areas which can grow enough food. Um, that means Europe. That, yeah, means, that means North. Course. That means North America, and I guess that's also a strong that means point, China. Strong point to say, you know, how it actually like brings it to every part of, of the course, world. Of the course, of course. I mean, climate change is affecting Scotland in the form of all sorts of ways, but in the form of um, of asylum seekers and others who are living here, um, uh, in one way, and uh, and also in terms of our own weather, more stormy, and not as much snow in winter. And what does that mean for our water levels? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I thought we'd take our first music break. Okay. But we'd, I thought we'd start with the song that you chose for today, All right. which is Forest Fires. Would you maybe like to, before I play it, quickly explain why you chose that song? Okay, right. Okay, so the song is called Forest Fire. So it sounds as if it's a climate change-related song. It isn't really, uh, but... Um, I mean, there are places in the west coast of um, of North America where you really people have to wear uh, masks all the time in Oregon, in Northern California. Uh, and, of course, fire, this yeah. year has seen huge slash and burn in the Amazon and even more so across African tropical rainforests, which is an underreported story. Mm. So forest fire is both a cause and a symptom of climate change. Mm. Um, This song, on the other hand, compares a love affair to a forest fire. It's by Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, who were my favourite band when I was a teenager and at university. And uh, I'm one of those strange people that's kept interested in Lloyd Cole's career. Uh, Last month, I went to see him uh, gig in Dundee. He was still fantastic. And he played this song. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm, I have to always hold myself back to say not, not, not say more about fire because I really think it's been such a year of, of fires in so many ways in the terms of you know what's happening in the Amazon and other rainforests, yeah. but then also just that message of you know our house from Greta Thunberg, you know our house is on fire yeah. and what can we do about it? What do you think has for you been like the most eye-catching, like eye-opening moment um, in just the in the climate? emergency where you thought we really need to do something yeah um two things one when i was 15 uh and i was so that's 34 years ago um i was in a school assembly uh in glasgow and there was a visiting speaker and he told us about the greenhouse effect and he explained how um carbon dioxide and methane and so on trap heat within the atmosphere. And the science was absolutely clear. And he was a prophet and he said, this is going to change everything in our lives unless we make changes. I heard that and remembered it. Now, we went to an assembly every week. Uh, at that school, I can remember only one other assembly that at all over five years at that school, uh, which is about the dropping of an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And then the one about climate change. Mm. So that has always stuck with me so that when I went to university and I did philosophy and I looked at ethics and international relations, it was the environmental issues that I was most interested in. I read the, um, the, the Brundtland Report, which uh, was called Our Common Future. It was a United Nations report from um, the late 80s and early 90s and um, really coined the phrase sustainable development, which uh, you are studying. And that, that, that department is in our university, partly because of that UN report. Mm. So these were moments that were very important for me. The first time I ever voted, I voted Ecology Party. Okay, when I was a student in Aberdeen. And then something happened and I lost the plot and I stopped caring in terms of my actions for a long time. And my hunch is that that story is repeated in many other people's lives. So then there was a new moment, I guess. Um, And I think it was uh, Greta Thunberg sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. It wasn't really what she said beforehand, and it wasn't really what she said it was the UN. It was her modelling of that behaviour. Her sailing the sail as well as talking the talk. Mm. If nobody said that before, I've just said it. (laughs) And not just just any sailboat, right? But one that when there was no wind was powered by solar. Mm. The thoughtfulness with which that 16-year-old, I don't know how old she is now, but I think she was 16 mm. at the time, the thoughtfulness with which she modelled her own behaviour um, is the thing that has affected me. Um, we can all say fine words, but she made herself uncomfortable. We're all going to have to make ourselves uncomfortable. I do not like turning the heating down. I I like it cold outside in the weather, but I like my house nice and toasty. We're all going to have to live with something a little more uncomfortable. And that was a moment for me when I saw her arriving in New York on the... um, Was it New York? Mm Mm-hmm, I think so, yeah. Yeah, on on that sailboat, I thought, 
yeah, that that's a moment that changes things. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to see how you know. Yeah, how sometimes you know people you can like the smallest like mm. they it sounds simple. Obviously, it's not you know to to have, make that like choice to do something a bit different, and then that can have like such a big impact. Absolutely. And I think that's really made Greta Thunberg stand out in, towards like okay, a lot of what you know past mm. environmentalists mm. who've spoken up about the issue mm. that there's there's no sense of hypocrisy behind that is really no. like and I don't talk. actually I don't mind if there is yeah. hypocrisy because I think we're all hypocrites to some yeah. extent and I mean I, nobody's asking for 100% purity here I think there's a danger if we look for 100% purity because then it's, we just end up finding that people have got feet of clay and we bring them down even if she sometimes does something which uses more carbon than an alternative, I don't mind. In this particular way, she showed how it can be done. Mm. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. You there. That, no, I, I, I completely agree because I think we can't. It, it would be wrong to say, you know, that one person just because in order to be an environmentalist, you have to have a certain checklist of yeah. things or you're not allowed to do something. Yeah. So I think that puts poor people off from actually speaking up yeah. or doing something yeah. rather than, um, you know, just working within the imperfect. That's right. Um, but, yeah, would you say, you know, there's a strong narrative for environmentalism in the Bible itself? Yes. Actually, I think there is. Um, absolutely. I think it comes in a number of ways. One is a recognition that human beings are part of a community of creation. Um, all the creation myths in the Bible um, understand human beings to be a part of nature. There's two particular narratives in the book of Genesis. One has human beings created first and then animals follow. And the other has human beings created uh, on the same day as many of the other animals. Either way, human beings are not seen as fundamentally distinct, but actually as fundamentally common with other animals, in particular other um, um, other wild animals. Um, so there's that. Then there's this sense that um, the whole world is there uh, and we have a responsibility there's a word used, which is sometimes translated dominion, sometimes translated as authority. But however it's translated, the sense of it is that human beings have responsibility towards the rest of creation. Um, and that is true. We have an unbelievable power. And, and I think the narrative of Scripture is use that power wisely. Use that power for the good of God's creation. Use that power for love rather than for exploitation. Um, the Bible does not promote the exploitation of creation for its own ends. Um, rather, it supports the use of creation for the good of creation. Uh, now, human beings have evolved such that we can eat both meat and non-meat items. And so... In time, the Bible originally sets up human beings as vegetarian, but then it recognizes that things have changed and actually it then gives permission for the farming of animals. So there's a domestication of some animals which the Bible allows and recognizes can be a good thing. 
Um, and so the Bible does not um, say that we must be vegetarian. Nevertheless, through a period of human history, it says that vegetarianism is the right way forward. Mm-hmm. So there are different options there and within that narrative. And wasn't it also sort of it, things started to turn, go a little bit wrong? Yeah. When people started, it was almost as an uh, emergency measure, yes. sort of eating meat because... It, absolutely. It was, a, it was a recognition that human beings were sinful, got things wrong, that creation itself was, was not perfect, that, that accidents happened. And so it's argued by a former St Andrews uh, scholar called Richard Bauckham. It's argued that um, the provision of domestication of animals for the eating of meat was, if you like, a pastoral provision in an imperfect situation. Um, and I can live with that, and I do eat meat. Um, I try to eat meat in a balanced way, um, and not every day and not every meal. But I, I do, uh, and I've thought closely about it, and I'm c- comfortable with that. Um, with that, though, I deplore some of the methods of, of uh, factory farming, and I only eat, for example, free-range eggs, uh, most of which come from our own chickens. So, but would you still say, you know, that what we eat is does matter quite strongly from a... It does. From a Christian point of view, I think it's very interesting from a faith perspective. Um, what we eat is always important in the Bible. There's a question of eating meat or not. There's a question of eating wild animals vis-a-vis domesticated animals, which is an under explored issue in many ways Uh, there's the issue of when we eat what we eat, Christianity has believed in fasting so Christians in Ethiopia for example will uh, will not eat uh, meat on um, Mondays or Wednesdays Uh, and through Lent uh, which is 40 days leading up to Easter will not eat meat at all and that's true of actually not just Ethiopians but other Orthodox and other Christians too Um, and then there's the question of how you eat in, in, in terms of what everybody else has got to eat. So the Christian faith is absolutely clear that uh, you should not be a glutton. Gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins, which is after the Bible. But it's absolutely clear in the teaching of Jesus, for example, that you should not eat too much. And certainly not if other people do not have enough to eat. Um, when Paul talks about the Christian meal, the fellowship meal that we sometimes call communion today, he's absolutely clear that you should not gorge yourself on the food at this table if there are others who can't afford to bring food to it, that you should share. And that if you're a wealthy person, you should bring a modest amount with you so that to, the, to this meal so that you're, you're not showing off. Um, Food in the in scripture is really interesting. Food is, of course, often a proxy for for our deepest um, impulses in life. Um, I don't think we think enough about food. I'm talking about people of faith. Um, Harvest Thanksgiving is another interesting one. That's it's a festival that's not in the Bible, but it's developed in the last hundred years or so, maybe 150 years in England, especially. Um, and so in the Anglican and other traditions, a Sunday, usually in September or October, mm. is given over to Harvest Thanksgiving. In my former parish, um, we put fishing nets up around the walls of the church because it was a fishing parish. And so there was a harvest of the sea was as important as the harvest of the land. That was an attempt in mid-Victorian times to recognise the importance of land 
agriculture, farming and food to the human experience in an era when more and more people lived in cities and that connection with the land had been cut. So although we don't celebrate it in the university, most churches in St Andrews will celebrate Harvest Thanksgiving about a month ago. Mm. And uh, I think that's a hugely important way of giving thanks to God. Yeah, I think it's very important, actually, that we do open up some discussions around it because I think it would be morally, it just, it wouldn't be morally sound not to think about some of the ways that we treat the land and that we treat animals at the moment. Mm. And... I mean, personally, for me, that's something I just don't feel comfortable Mm -hmm. with and I cannot support. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the difficulty is just obviously because diet is also such a culture thing and it's so personal for everyone. And, um, and of course, I think it won't work the same for everyone else, uh, for like everyone Mm -hmm. in the same way, because, mm, yeah, as human beings and our bodies are also sometimes a lot a lot more different than than we think and what what we like and what, how we grew up and how our culture and what you know what we eat. So it is a bit difficult sometimes, you know, to address that sort of issues just because it's it's so personal for everyone. Um, but there's also obviously that sense of like uncomfortability, which I think mm. is a problem with environmentalism in general mm. that people don't feel comfortable to address mm. issues of. Yeah, environmentalism, also environmentalism and faith maybe Mm. because it opens up a new moral dilemma of having to look at things differently. Um, But yeah, why why do you think, you know, there's been, like the environmental issues have been avoided quite a bit in my people of faith? Uh, They have. Um, I mean, I've been, the previous question asked me to present, as it were, the Bible, uh, the narrative in favour of climate action and and environmental responsibility. I think it's clear in the Bible. But I think the Christian faith has often not read the Bible very well and has basically been interested in looking after ourselves too much. Uh, So there's a tradition that runs through faith that disdains the body and glorifies the soul. And you see this in all sorts of ways. You see it, you see it in most, most religions, sexual morality, which tends to think that sex is almost always a bad thing. Um, and yet if we didn't have it, how could we have, a, how could we have procreation? So there's a disconnect there. You tend to see it in our um, lack of interest in aesthetics, which you get in certain religions. My own Church of Scotland Presbyterian tradition was not interested in beauty. Um, you tend to see it in um, sometimes in forms of misogyny that you get in religion, and there's a fear there of women's bodies. Um, and you certainly get it in in a sense that the land is there for the benefit of the human. And once you make this strong distinction between the human and the rest of creation, and actually you don't even see human beings as part of creation, um, you have this ability to rape and pillage the land, which is legitimated. And religion sometimes foments that, actually, by this this understanding of human beings as being somehow closer to God than to creation, rather than seeing us as part of the community Mm. of creation. And you see it through a privileging of the spirit. So you get this idea in some religions, particularly Christianity and Islam and Buddhism, that the idea of human life is escape, to escape the body, to escape the limitations of the finite, 
the idea that death is the separation of the soul from the body and that at death we, we get rid of this nasty carbon structure that's been holding us back and we go off into heaven as pure spirit. Um, that idea has been one of the sort of root causes, I think, for Christian faith being willing to treat the environment as unimportant. Just seen as something passing through? Yeah, we are passing through it. It's temporary, it's ephemeral. It's there to serve us in our more important journey to heaven. Um, and that's been damaging. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it seems so strange to me as well because, I mean, despite all of the ways how this world is so broken and just how many things are wrong in it, there's just still so much beauty and yeah. so much that is just to be valued and to mm. be loved. Mm. And to sort of, I think, to forget that would be, it's just, it just doesn't make sense to me, especially also because of the people we live on earth with, with our family and of children. And what we kind of leave as a legacy on earth kind of determines the life of mm. and the future of yeah absolutely of everyone who stays behind absolutely and um and so there's a there's a charity a well-known charity called christian aid which is the main welfare charity and uh, of all the the mainstream churches in britain <clears throat> and in ireland and christian aid uh so it does a lot of work um in disaster relief in uh, climate justice, trade justice, taxation justice work, advocacy work in um, the two-thirds world. I, actually, I'm never, I never quite remember the politically correct term for, for poorer parts of the world. But anyway, uh, Africa, Deve developing. developing world. Yeah, I'm never actually up to speed with that. I like two-thirds world, actually, because it gives a sense that it's bigger than Europe and North America mm. and Australia. Japan and so on. But um, Christian Aid has a slogan, we believe in life before death. And it's really an excellent slogan. It doesn't say we don't believe in life after death, but it says we also believe in life before death. Christianity pretended that life before death didn't matter. And that included issues like beauty and wonder and handing on things to the next generation and justice for the poor and feeding the hungry, and so on. Mm. But I hope I believe in life before death. Actually, I don't think I'd be a university chaplain if I didn't. Yeah, so I just thought it'd probably be good to have another music break. Please, we've talking what have for you a chosen? Long time. What have you chosen? I've chosen a song that I've actually also not played before on, on radio, and it's um, Adiamos. Um, by um, Carl Jenkins. Okay. And I thought it was quite interesting because obviously it's called Song of the Sa um, Sanctuary. Right. But it doesn't have any meaning behind it. It sounds like it's obviously Latin and the words, like it sounds very beautiful and you wonder sort of, you know, what does it mean? But it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything. Okay. And I, it's, I think it's quite something quite beautiful to, to just, I don't know, let go okay. of that, you know, like, oh, what does it mean? And sort of like listen to, to, yeah, to like maybe between the lines and okay. between, yeah. Let's do that. So, yeah, I'll play that. Yes, yeah, so we're coming towards the end of the show, which is why it's 
thought be important to maybe speak about you know it's good to like that we talk about these things and obviously mm. it needs to be talked about mm -hmm. more as well but how can we actually translate that talk into action and how can we sort of foster climate action you know within faith communities well uh it's a great question uh leah um I'll speak for the chaplaincy, which is not a faith community, but a university department. Um, and I work in it, so does Sam, the assistant chaplain, and there, there are two chaplaincy secretaries. So we're a very small number of staff, four staff, um, plus honorary members of staff from the other faiths and philosophies of life. Uh, so we're not a faith, we, we, you could call us a faith community, um, but we're not a church, mm. all right? We're, we're, we're broader than that and smaller. Um, but we have an influence, I think, within the university amongst the university's 9,000 students and nearly 3,000 staff. Small influence and in some people's lives, a big influence. What can we do and what have we done? Well, we can, cut to try, we, can, we can try as a university department to try to cut our carbon footprint through things like uh, we're, we're gradually installing lights that go out uh, when there's no need for them to be on. That's planned for the chaplaincy building. Um, we've recently put in a new and more efficient boiler um, we are very much trying to cut our, our use of paper. We do use paper for publications such as um, uh, orders of service and chapel services, but in the other services, they're reused. I mean, you just have the same order of service every time you go to Evensong or Compline. Mm. You don't get a special one each time. Um, internally, we use email. Our newsletter is electronic. Um, we're on Facebook. All of that is relatively low carbon. Um, we um, we don't use single-use water. We have a, a filter machine. We don't even need that. I'm quite happy drinking tap water from just about yeah. anywhere. Um, and so on that side, we, we're trying to do what we can. Um, we also try to raise consciousness. So every week in term time, I or my colleague lead a discussion group called Thinking Aloud. Uh, it's always on faith and society, and this semester it's been specifically on faith and the environment. Every week, students between two and nine students and staff have met to discuss a huge range of issues covering faith and environment. We've touched on some of them in this interview, Leah, but we've yeah. not touched on them all. We haven't mm -hmm. mentioned clothing, for example, or baptism and water. So, and 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 we've got uh, deforestation coming up in yeah. two weeks' time. So. There's, you know, so that's been a really fruitful set of discussions. I would yeah. love more people to come. Yeah, I have to add to that. So, dear listeners, if you're not coming to the Thursday <laughs> discussion group, you're missing out because it's been really, it's been really great. Yeah, meets so. in my house, uh, 10 Abbey Street, Thursday nights, 8 o'clock. Uh, you get a cup of tea, you get biscuits. Uh, sometimes they don't have any uh, palm oil in them. Sometimes they do. And, um, but you also get to stroke our three cats. Yeah. So then there's that. Then there's chapel services. So um, more and more in chapel services, the prayers and even the preaching is reflecting climate change concerns. And all our charitable givings, pretty much, not quite all, but most of our charitable offerings that students, staff and others contribute to this semester have gone to environmental charities, both working in, in Fife, in Scotland and internationally. Um, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds. That's thousands of pounds that have gone to environmental charities because of a decision the chaplaincy has taken. 
The biggest service of the year is the Christmas service at Holy Trinity Church. It's on Saturday, the 7th of December at 8 o'clock. Um, and I've just decided today on the charities that that collection will go to, and one of them is Friends of the Earth Scotland. Yeah, it's it's been really it's been really so so meaningful. I think that this year we've had a focus yeah. on um, environment and the chaplaincy. It's actually it's really interesting how many people have actually come to me as well and spoken about it and been like, oh, it's just the the to say that you know. Um, the chaplaincy and also your support of the climate strike. So I've had people of the community and, I, and they came to me about the climate strike and I asked yeah. them, oh, how come you found out about them? They were like, that they found out about through the chaplaincy newsletter. Yes, our weekly, our, weekly, so, our weekly e-newsletter um, has a whole section on, um, on climate and environmental issues that, uh, that, our, that our secretaries put together. So mm. it's a team effort um, yeah. and it's small. But, you know, um, as, a, as you and I were talking about it, thinking aloud last night, Leah, it's easy to think this is just a drop in the ocean. Mm. But what if that drop is a significant piece of dye that really changes yeah. what the ocean is like? D-Y-E. Exactly. Let's go for it. And also lots of drops form lots of, form lots of like, yeah, raindrops form lots of storms that can reshape coastlines. That's Isn't kind of my thing. That's a, that's a, that's but, a thing. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. I know we're running out of time. Absolutely. At the end of the show. But thank you so much, Arnold, for coming to speak today. I know there are lots of more issues mm. that can be discussed mm. and if listeners are interested I'd encourage you obviously to come to like mm. some of the discussion groups like Thinking Aloud. Yeah. Um, but yes, the last song that I'm going to play is a favourite of mine which is um, Love Song to the Earth by Paul McCartney. And thank you very much Leah yeah. for having me. Pleasure. God bless thank you. Thank you for coming. Okay, have a, to all our listeners, thank you for, for tuning in and um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Have a wonderful um, afternoon.